And got to tell you, VBS tomorrow, I'm excited. A lot of kiddos, hundreds and hundreds of kiddos in Alma and in Mount Pleasant uh, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How good is that? That is really, really good stuff. Welcome to a brand new series, everybody. This is From the Heart. Uh, why are we calling this From the Heart? Well, you're going to hear uh, seven sermons over the next seven weeks, a little chunk of our summer here, uh, from seven uh, different uh, godly people. Wonderful, wonderful people. And I want to pose it, if I could, in a question. And the question's a little dramatic, but this should uh, maybe set the stage for us. Uh, imagine if I were to ask you, said, like, like, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, kind of a dramatic question, but if you knew it, like, man, that's it for me, and you had one chance, one chance to open up this incredible book, this holy book, and to share a message with people that you care about. What, what would you say? What, what is the one message? If you knew, like, I, I'm not going to have, I'll never get another opportunity, but I've got one chance to share a message. I, I think I know the answer that I think just about any follower of Christ would, would say. And I think that what they would say is, man, I would preach a message about the gospel. I, I would tell people about Jesus Christ coming and dying on a cross because He loves us and forgiveness of sins. I think just about any follower of Christ would say, that is the essential message. And that is what I'm going to do today. I'm like so delighted and thrilled to tell you the most important message you can ever hear. And I know that sounds huge, but it is. It is the most important message out of every message out there that you could ever hear and wrap your, your, uh, your heart and your mind around. And then, continuing in my dramatic question, for the following six weeks after that, here's what the remainder of those weeks would be. Imagine, yes, you had one chance to share a message from the Bible, but you knew that the gospel had already been preached, which is what will take place right now, today. So you're like, oh, well, that essential message of the gospel has been covered. There's so much truth in here. If I had one more opportunity to share something, and so the following six messages will be six wonderful godly people who are going to share something I think deeply personal from the Word of God and from their heart to say, this is something that the Lord has shown to me, and it is a treasure inside of me. And that's what the following six weeks will be. So I, I hope and trust that you find yourself in awe and wonder and gratitude towards God over this chunk of the summer and that you grow and, uh, and you find yourself lost in the Word of God in a wonderful, wonderful way. Today feels weighty to me in, in a great way in that I feel the responsibility to, to communicate the core of Christianity, uh, the meat and potatoes. Uh, if we took all peripheral issues and we said, let's put them on the shelf, what are the nuts and bolts? What, what have I got to know about this whole thing about God or faith or church or the Bible? What are the essential must-knows? That's what I get to share with you today. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to uh, just hear from you. Father, we pray that this would be your time. We ask, God, that you would reveal the message of love to everyone listening this very morning. Lord, so often we can be stubborn, we can be thick-skulled, we can be distracted, we can be strong-willed. I pray, Lord, that you would prepare a readiness in every one of our hearts to hear the best news that we've ever heard. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Final scene in a Steven Spielberg movie, a historic fictional movie based on D-Day by the name of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, a very violent movie the, as a result of the history. But there's a final scene in that movie, uh, and if you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoiler alert, but it's been out like 15 years, so it's your fault. <laughs> but it, it, it provides a profound question, a phenomenal question. We see in this final scene, there's an elderly gentleman. He is very well dressed, has a suit and tie on, silver hair, and you can tell immediately there is an anxious look on this man's face. The man's name is Ryan, James Ryan. And he's with his extended family, um, his children, his grandchildren, his spouse. They're all with him. And it's a beautiful day, and he's going to a, a grave site. In fact, it's a military uh, graveyard where there are just rows and rows and rows of manicured grass with these beautiful white stones. And there's this look of anguish on his face. He's moving ahead of his family, and he's walking at a brisk pace. And you can see he's looking for something. His family are just a little bit behind him as he sort of, he seems to be headed in a very distinct direction. He knows where he's going. He's searching for a grave. The grave is the grave of Captain John Miller, who died on June 13th, 1944, in France. And you can just tell this man is emotional. Something is going to happen. There's a transaction that's about to take place. There's a question. It is a question that has been haunting him all of his life, his entire life. This unspoken question has brought him to this place here and now, really at the twilight of his years. He finally finds this grave of Captain Miller where he has to answer the question. You see, decades earlier, on June the 6th, 1944, Captain Miller and his men landed on Omaha Beach. This was D-Day. Their assignment was very specific and very unusual. This elderly man, Ryan, their assignment was to bring him home from the war. Bring him home. Why? Because Ryan's two brothers had died in combat in Europe, and his third brother had died in action in New Guinea. And the army had made a decision that three sons were enough for any mother to bury. And so they distinctly said, bring Ryan home. That's enough. The task, obviously, of locating Ryan in France and saving his life from the war was a mission impossible of sorts. And so we see the story unfold in this movie where there is violent combat and several of the men on this small task force, they lose their lives. And then it comes to this sort of awful climactic moment very towards the back end of the movie where Captain Miller, the grave that we've landed at, the grave that this older man has found, he is injured, he is down for the count, and he's right beside Ryan. He's been shot in the lung, and he cannot breathe anymore. He's gasping for breath. And he looks now at this young man, Ryan, and he says to him, as he's dying in his last breaths, James, earn it. Earn this. And he dies. Are these his final orders? Is this the charge on Ryan's life? Earn this. Earn it. And so here we find Ryan, now an old man, who has tried to live a good life. 
And he's standing in front of this grave hoping that he has done enough. He hopes that he has earned his life. Was it worth the sacrifice of those men in the task force? Was it worth the sacrifice of this man that he's standing in front of right now, Captain Miller? And now an old man towards the end of his life, he stands in front of Captain Miller's grave and the question remains unanswered. And the man is overwhelmed and he's emotional. And he falls down on his knees right into the grass. He's crying. And his family finally realize something's wrong. And they come running towards him. They don't understand what's happening. His wife comes by his side. And she looks at him in the eyes. And he looks at her. And sort of passionately he says to her, Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've done that. She's completely confused. Why is he saying this? What? She says. He's pleading with her. He looks at her so earnestly. He says, please tell me I'm a good man. And he stands up and he salutes his fallen comrade. It's a profound question. One that I think plays on the mind of every person at some stage in your life. I think everyone looks in the mirror and asks this question about themselves. An honest assessment Every person has to ask the question, have I been a good man? Have I been a good woman? And here's the question, have I lived a good life? Go ahead and ask it now. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of Paul. And to put it mildly, God rocks his world <laughs> upside down. He takes everything that Paul thought was important, everything that Paul thought was valuable and meaningful, and he just shows him, like, Paul, that's foolishness. It's, it really doesn't have any meaning at all. It's actually contrary to what I want for your life, Paul. Paul is so radically transformed by God that he just is sold out. I mean, 100% all in for Jesus Christ. God Whatever it takes for me to be a follower of you, that's what I will do. So much so that in the context of his life, it becomes extraordinarily difficult for Paul. We see over the course of his life, because he's living for Jesus, that he is imprisoned and starved and humiliated. Paul is persecuted. He is beaten. There are threats on his life. He is in poverty. All of that goes on in Paul's statement. And in that context of all of that difficulty, Paul makes this singular statement from Romans. And all of our scriptures today are going to be from Romans. Chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Church, give me an amen. amen. Paul is upside down. His life has totally, radically changed persecution, actually to the point of martyrdom, he says, I'm all in for this message that I'm preaching to you right now. The most important message that you will ever, ever hear in your life. I'm sold out for that. What is the gospel? What does it mean? For Paul, it was an extraordinary thing. Perhaps more so than anyone else in Scripture, I would argue, I think he lays it out so clearly with four very simple statements all found in this book. I want to show you the most important thing you will ever understand. Statement number one from Paul says this, 
It's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did you know that when Paul says all, he means you too? For every single one of you, myself included, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I just wish, I just wish that I could make up a fairy tale. I wish I could put my hand on my heart and look every single one of you in the eye and just say, look, you're fine. All is well. Have I lived a good life? Great question. Necessary question, actually a profound question. And Paul steps onto the pages of history and he pens these sacred words under the divine inspiration and authority of the Word of God and he answers the question clearly. No, you have not lived a good life. There's the answer. Ouch. I don't think I like that very much. No, you have not earned it. You have not been able to earn this. And it's crushing stuff what Paul writes. It's damning, damning stuff. stuff but it's, it's true. It's true of my life. I don't think I've ever met a person that would ever say, well, I've never made a mistake. I've never met that person yet. And Paul says, you're right. The start of the most important message that you will ever hear brings clarity to the problem. And the problem is you. The problem is me. If I could use one word to describe you, to describe me, to describe the honest and true condition and assessment of every person that I've ever met, these are the little words that come to mind for me. I am shattered. I wrote those words down weeks ago when I was writing this message. I mean it. Your very nature puts you in opposition to God, in opposition to love. The expression of that life is no shock to anybody here. It's no news to anybody here. You look all around you and you look in the mirror and you know what we see? We see selfishness, don't we? We see rude people. We see unkindness. Actually, it gets kind of worse than that. We see anger and rage and racism and greed and envy and violence. We see sexual abuse. We see, we see murder and gossip and theft. And we talk about all of those things. And then we realize, well, that's not very pretty. And so what we do is we go around in life and we say, well, I'm going to actually try to hide the ugliness of those things because I don't want anyone to see that about me. I know it's true about me, but I don't want anyone to see that. And so we hide this ugliness and then we get really foolish. We know these things to be true about us. We hide the ugliness of it. And then we walk around pretending like we've got our act together. We hold our heads up high. We puff out our chests. And we actually get filled with a little bit of pride in our lives. Even though the truth about us is hidden. This is our condition. You might look like you've got your act together. You might look very well dressed this morning. You might look kind of classy. You might be well put together, but I'm telling you, you're shattered. You're totally shattered. All the pieces of your life have been splintered to dust. There's no putting them back together. It's not even a jigsaw puzzle that you can fix. There's no patch-up job available for dust. You are shattered. Now, I know that that's hard to hear 
In fact, in this moment, you're like, why did I come to church? Why do I need to hear this? This is depressing stuff. Well, let me help you with that. It gets worse. (laughs) Statement number two, you can blame Paul for this one. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, so you're a sinner. Now let me tell you what this means. The wages of sin is, is what, church? One more time. The wages of sin is? Death. The most important message in the world confronts you with this ugly truth. It may be ugly, but it's still completely true that yes, you and I are sinners, and that is true as the day is long. You can deny it. You can hide from it. You can pretend that it's something else. You can close your eyes and put your hands over your ears. It does not matter. It's simply true. Just look at the Ten Commandments. God's standard. We've all fallen short of the standard of God. Just look at the Ten Commandments. If we were to just pick a few of them out, answer this question for me. Have you ever lied in your life? Let me try this again. Church, have you ever lied in your life? If you, ha- if you haven't answered that question, you're now lying to me right now. Have you ever blasphemed God's name? Have you ever taken the holy name of God and used it as though it was a curse word in your life when you were angry or or frustrated or impatient or something like that? And all of a sudden, the very name that we just sang about comes out of your mouth as though it is a foul thing. Yes, we've done this. Have you ever looked at somebody else or maybe an image of somebody else with lust in your eyes and lust in your heart? The God, say, God says that is the very same thing, and it's a very old-fashioned, Old Testament word, but I'll use it anyway. God says that is the same as fornication, which is basically sexual disobedience in our lives. Have you ever hated somebody? Have you ever just said, man, I, I just hate their guts. I hate everything about them. The New Testament tells us that is the equivalent of murder. So I'm not trying to judge you, but I would say by your own admission today, just looking at four out of the Ten Commandments, here's what you and I have said about ourselves. You are a lying, blaspheming, murdering adulterer. Now you're really glad you came to church. (laughs) And if you were to stand before God on Judgment Day, would you be innocent or guilty? Would you be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Let me be more personal. Would I be innocent or guilty? Just for you now, would you be innocent or guilty? I know what my answer is. I'd be guilty. And the consequences of that are not trivial. They're not. There's nobody shrugging their shoulders at a lying, blaspheming, murdering adulterer. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's not a fine. It's not community service. It's not try better next time. It's your life. That's what Romans 6 says. This is God's standard. Actually, there should be no shock in this for us because He has said this from the very, very beginning. He could not have made this any more clear. If you eat the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Very clear, like the first pages in the whole Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but in the Old Testament, they had this thing called the sacrificial system. They would go to the temple, and people had sins, and they recognized, look, I've fallen short of this standard. I'm a lying, blaspheming, murdering adulterer, and that's only four out of the ten. 
I realize that I fall short of the standard of God. I realize the standard of God, that the consequences for that is not something small. It's something massive. It's my life. It's actually death. So they would go into the temple. They said, God, is there any chance we could kind of do this like kind of a, a swap? W- would that work, God? Would that be okay? And God gave permission for this to go forward. And so we see for centuries, individuals would come into the temple And they would say, I'm going to take the life of an animal. And there were several different animals, but more than any other animal we see referred to again and again, that it would be a lamb. Sometimes it would be a bird or an oxen. There were different things. But more often than not, it was a lamb. And not just any lamb, but they would always look for sort of the perfect model of a lamb, like without any defects, without any blemishes whatsoever. And they would take this lamb and they would slaughter the lamb. It would spill the blood of a lamb. And they would say, look, we recognize the consequences of this standard that we have not upheld. Is there any chance there could be like a substitution here? That the death of this animal, this, this blood that's being shed right now, could be in place of me. And then you know what they would do? They would go back again and again and again. Why would they do that? Because they would sin again and again and again. We know this. This is the story of our lives. Extreme version of this is Solomon when the, te- the temple is actually dedicated to God. He slaughters, get your head around this if you can imagine this, he slaughters 22,000 oxen. He slaughters 120,000 sheep. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood. What a gruesome scene. It says this fire came down from heaven and consumed the entire sacrifice and the glory of God filled the temple. What a scene. One of the things that the preaching of God's word is intended to do, the very presence of God, what it's intended to do is actually to bring you to a place of revelation, to reveal something to you, to expose something within you, to actually convict you of truth. That's what the work and activity of the Holy Spirit through the preached Word of God is supposed to do in my life and in your life to convict you of truth, to bring you to a place where you say, that was a lie. I see with clarity truth about myself and about God and where I stand in God. The convicting truth today that you and I would say, I am a sinner. I see that and I recognize that. Because sometimes we have these moments where we think, oh, come on. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm not too bad. Do you remember that day I helped that lovely little old lady cross the street, right? The, uh, the bag came around for the offering. I stuck an extra 20 in there. Points, right? Not too bad. We kind of walk away from little moments like that, sort of puffed up and pleased with our own version of our own self-righteousness. We have these moments then where we think, I'm not too bad, or we look at someone else and we go, well, I'm not as bad as them. I mean, I'm pretty good compared to that, to her, to to that guy. And we walk away then having judged somebody else and with this false sense of understanding of even who we are. And that's where you go back to the Word of God. You say, God, I need clarity. I need to hear from you. Sin is not something I do from time to time. It's something I perpetually am. And in that condition, I stand in front of you. It's like I'm a dead man, God. What's going on here? You've got a dead man talking to dead people, spiritually speaking. 
That's what we are. Because Paul explicitly says, you're a sinner and the wages of sin is death. Permanent, eternal separation from the Father where I actually receive what I ought to receive. I actually get what is just. Justice is properly executed in my life. I receive the wrath of God, judgment, and death. Please hear this statement. I am undone. That's where the gospel brings you. I'm undone. I mean, what a miserable thing to hear today. I'm sorry, but it is. It's miserable. That's horrible. It's actually unbearable. I'm undone. I'm shattered. I haven't lived a good life. And as much as I'd rather not say that, this is the gospel message. And I don't get to change it, neither do you. That's above my pay grade. So I hope you're listening to the most important message you've ever heard in your life. And I hope today, I hope you're quaking. I hope you're shaking in your boots because that is miserable. I hope you're coming under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit as your sins and your flaws are becoming unbearably vivid to you right now. Thankfully, that is not the end of the gospel message. Statement number three, Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrated His love for us in this while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Church, would you please say, praise God. Can I read it again? But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I am so grateful that the story doesn't end. And this is this sort of unimaginable, phenomenal answer, the good news to all of what is just unbearably miserable. What was unbearable for you and for I in was intolerable for God. God sees the problem. You're a sinner. He sees the miserable outcome of that, death. And he says, I'll take your place. Remember that swap? Remember that substitution thing? God himself says, I'll take your place. I'll take the punishment. I'll take that death. I'll take your guilt, and I'm actually the only one who is without sin. I actually know nothing of guilt or shame or regret, but I will become sin on your behalf. I'll take your place. I'll be your substitute. And now, you'll never taste death. You'll never know the wrath of God. You'll never know judgment. All you will ever know is the smile of God over your life. I will experience that for you. And you think about that sacrificial system that lasted for centuries upon centuries, where they always brought these lambs, these perfect lambs, these unblemished, spotless lambs, and they would bring them to be killed. And we get this monumental moment at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry where this wild prophet is in the desert, and he's calling people to repentance, and he's baptizing them and baptizing them. And there he sees, coming on the horizon, the Son of the living God. God, and he shouts in front of everyone to hear. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everyone goes, what is he saying? Because they know the sacrificial system. 
What are you saying about this man? And it says Jesus does this as he moves forward into the several years of his ministry. It says he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, walking into exactly what he knew it would be, his own slaughter. This is the gospel. While we are sinners, while we are sinners, Jesus died for us. And so many of us really struggle with this. We really do. We can't fathom that Jesus would do this for us. Why would you do this? Why would you take me at my worst and do something like that for me? We fail to come to God sometimes because we believe the lie that, first of all, well, if I could just tidy things up a little bit. Have you ever done this in your own life? Have you ever done this where like, well, I don't think I can go to church today because I've got to tidy some stuff up. It's like visitors coming over. It's the craziest thing. You know, you're quick, go upstairs and make the beds. Has anyone here ever have a visitor who said, excuse me, I need to go upstairs and check the beds? We do the tidy up, we clean the kitchen, we get the vacuum out, we do all the stuff because visitors are coming over. We do the same thing with God. I think I need to tidy things up. Let's get the china out and let's make sure everything's polished and stand up straight and comb your hair and look presentable. Somehow, if I could just get these impulses under control, maybe even just a little bit, maybe if I could just read a little bit more Bible, maybe if I could just drink a little bit less, maybe if I could get over that terrible thing that was done to me and start to try to forgive a little bit, maybe if I could clean up my language, maybe if I could string a few Sundays together of going to church, and it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Because the consequences is death. And here we are trying to dust, trying to tidy things up a little bit. God's standard is beyond your greatest reach. And for those of you here listening to me today, and you think of yourself, well, I live a pretty respectable life. And then the other extreme, for those of you here who look at yourself and you say, man, I'm practically criminal. I'm awful. You both need to know this. You have both fallen infinitely short of the standard of God. You cannot reach it. The smallest little sin deserves complete damnation. Equally so, there is no sin so massive and so great that the shed blood of Jesus Christ cannot manage that. You see, Jesus is a far better Savior than you are a sinner. Some of us are pretty good at sinning. <laughs> Jesus is way better at saving. Listen to this statement. He lived a perfect life. And this is where the gospel turns to pure joy. He lived a perfect life. When I was 16, 17, 18, me and my friends, we'd go out onto the streets of Dublin. We'd go into O'Connell Street in particular, which is the main street in the city center of Dublin, right on the River Liffey. And we'd go out and we'd just start sharing the gospel with people every summer for months. And we did everything and anything you could think of. We did skits and dramas and music. And we gave things away. We gave water bottles. We did all kinds of stuff. I'll never forget, <clears throat> we did one summer, this whole thing, we did a, a questionnaire where we went up to people and said, hey, I'm doing a questionnaire about religion. Can I ask you 10 questions? And people were like, okay, yeah. 
And it got down to the last question. And the last question is another very dramatic question. If you've been around Christianity before, you might know this question, or maybe new to you today. The last question was this. It was always this clincher. If you were to die tonight and stand in front of God, and he said to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If you were to die tonight, I'm asking you, and you were to stand before God, and he said, why, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Alistair Begg comments on this. If you answer, because I, because I, I believed, because I, I, I prayed a prayer, if you answer, because I, I had faith, if you answer, because I am this because I'm trying to, because I'm continuing, because I, listen to me, the only proper answer to that question is actually in the third person. Because he, because he did, it's actually nothing to do with what I've done here. My contribution to this is at a zero. Think about the thief on the cross. What an utter mess. I cannot wait to find that guy in heaven one day. I've, I've got to sit down and have a cup of tea with this fella and ask him a few questions. Because like minutes prior, you were just cursing Jesus out. You'd never been in a Bible study, had you? You never got baptized. Did you know anything about church membership? And yet you made it. I, I want to sit down with this guy and say, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? How did you possibly get through the gates? In my imagination, I see him coming through the pearly gates, and there's these angels, and they come up to him, and they sort of say, so, um, you know, what, what are you doing here? And he looks at them, this thief, and he says, honestly, I, I don't really know how I got here. Oh, what do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. And the angel says, well, I'm going to have to get my supervisor here. So the supervisor comes over, and this other bigger angel looks at him and says, So, I mean, are you clear on the doctrine of justification? No, I've never heard of that before in my life. Well, are, are you clear on the, the doctrine of the, the you know, the, how sacred Scripture is? S say what? What are we talking about here? Well, okay, I've got to ask you this question. On what basis are you here? And he's just staring at them. And eventually, in frustration, they're roaring at him. How are you here? On what basis are you here? And he just looks at me. He says, look, all I got is the guy in the middle said I could come, okay? That's all I got. <laughs> it's the only answer. It really is the only answer. You can't trust you. You can't. You just can't trust you. You can't trust your own experience. You cannot trust your own church heritage. You cannot trust your own efforts to clean up your own act. You cannot trust your own little solutions. You cannot trust your own understanding or your clever little theology or some little book that you read that you thought was really good. You cannot even trust this church or this pastor or some Christian book. He lived a perfect life. You did not. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to take your place. 
He has come to bear the weight of a punishment that you could never handle. Philip Yancey says this, Jesus forgave a thief dangling on a cross, knowing full well that he had converted out of plain fear. That thief would never study the Bible. He'd never attend synagogue or church. He'd never make amends to the people that he had obviously wronged. He simply said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus promised, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is another shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. What will you do with this truth? What will you do with this ultimate essential message? A profound and haunting question. Have I lived a good life? The answer is no, I haven't. Not even the nicest of us. That I am shattered and so are you. That sin has broken me to pieces, to dust. That I am undone. That the consequences of my sin is eternal death and separation from God. And that he has lived a perfect life. Let me show you this one final scripture, this fourth statement from Paul. This man whose life was turned upside down. It's a scripture that I read earlier, but I only read a part of it. And I'm going to finish to you the full sentence. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, yes, the wages of sin is death. But here's the end. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. Praise God. And in all of this mess, Jesus just shows up. And it's not even so much that it's this thing that happened 2,000 years ago. And I get that, and of course it is. But actually, what's most valid today is it's this thing that takes place right here and right now. The power of God for your life today. In this moment, Jesus confronts you with this truth where he says, I have a gift for you. I have a present for you today. Do you remember the words of Captain Miller? Earn it. Earn this. This is where Captain Miller had it all wrong. Because the gift of God that he has for you is unearnable. You do not deserve it. You cannot afford it. It is simply offered to you. You cannot work for it. You cannot manipulate God for it. You cannot twist his arm. Listen to the voice of God over your life today. I know everything about you, and I love you. I know the worst thing about you, and I love you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin and shame and dishonesty and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I see your shallow faith as it is right now. I see your feeble prayer life. I see your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this. I dare you, I dare you, I dare you to trust that I love you. Not just the way you're supposed to be in some better upgraded version of you. I actually love you today, right now, just the way you are. I dare you to trust in my grace that I came, that I died for you, that I took your place. It's funny, really, for all the darkness inside of me, never once in this transaction does God come and go, condemnation. Look at you. Filthy. Get your act together. He just doesn't do it. And if anybody had the right to, if anyone has the right to strip me down, it's him. No, he says to you today, look at my son Jesus Christ. 
Look at his blood shed for you. And he gives you this invitation. Three words. Repent. Confess. Follow. This is a holy moment, church. The activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. I hope some of you are listening to me, and I hope your heart is beating out of your chest. I hope you feel the nudge of God, the voice of God speaking to you. That you see clearly in this moment that you're covered in sin. Your disobedience, that you're sitting under the weight of that and what it means. But what is most compelling, most curious, in fact, you're just wondering right now if this could possibly real is be real, is that in all of that I've shared with you, you're wondering right now, but could it be true that you're actually telling me that God loves me? Could that be true of me? That Jesus Christ loves me just the way I am? The claim that you're loved by God, I would tell you that the proof of that is to be found in a man pinned to a tree. God doesn't want your money, doesn't want your career, doesn't want your car, doesn't want your clothes, doesn't want your whatever. What he wants is much more than that. He wants you. All of you. Repent of your sins. To confess that he is God. That he is your God. And to follow him all the days of your life. To every man and woman and child who would accept this free gift of grace and love, actually to the entire church, can I ask you to stand with me now, everyone in Alma, everyone online at home, everyone in Mount Pleasant. If you're a follower of Christ, I want you to pray this prayer with me. If you're not a follower of Christ, and you know, but you know, but you know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, would you pray this prayer alongside everyone in this church, a prayer of repentance and confession, a commitment to follow Him all the days of your life? And would you pray it good and loud from your heart? Church, together. Dear God, I confess my sin. I ask for forgiveness. I thank you for the cross. For doing that for me. I believe in you. I trust you. I will love you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the King of Kings.